you turn in your Bibles to the uh, book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and I just want to read a couple verses for us out of Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, as you look back over these uh, couple verses, just as far as the the basic introduction here, uh, one thing that that we see very clearly is that if we look around us in today's world, we live in, a, in an age that is a uh, complaining society. <laughs> You know, I like when Ken said, how many of you, I wanted to say, how many of you complained this morning about something? You know, because uh, that's where we're at. That's where we live. That's the real, real world. Uh, but Paul says here in verse 14 that we should do all things without complaining and disputing. And so this morning I said, you know, what are you uh, complaining about? I wanted to put now, but I thought that's a little too much in your face. But I thought, really, the, the idea here is stop complaining. And I read an uh, interesting thing in a commentary I have, and he kind of quoted this sociologist that made a very interesting point. He said, you know, today we basically live in a society that has a complaining attitude. And uh, if you stop and he said, you look at just the family structure in the day in which we live. Each family has, I don't know if these statistics are old or not, but he said 1.7 children. I don't know who the point seven is. You know, the brother would probably say that's a sister and vice versa. But, you know, I'll have to ask Mason and Sophia that when we see him here in a couple of weeks. But um, every family has about 1.7 children. And, and what happens is that uh, because we only have that many children in our families, it doesn't make it necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that. But a lot of times as parents, what happens? Um, we, we go to the children and we'll ask them, well, what would you like for breakfast? And we go to for lunch. What do you want for lunch? What do you want for dinner? Because it's easy to do that. It's easy to meet their needs because there's only one of them. And, and so we grow these children up thinking that, hey, all I have to do is just wait and somebody will ask me what I want. And then I tell them and I get it. And like I said, I'm not saying that's a necessarily a bad thing, but I think that it, it, it goes deeper, and this, this sociologist pointed that out. Um, you know, even, even as, a, as a matter of, you know, the, when they get into high school, and it's kind of like, well, you know, when will you be home so I can cook dinner? That's the question we ask. When, you know, if you grew up in a bigger family, any of you, it wasn't, you know, you didn't, usually didn't get any choice. I mean, we had nine you know, uh, six brothers and two sisters and myself and our family and various people that just showed up, I don't know who they were, at the dinner table every night and breakfast table and lunch table whenever we ate. There was multiple people there that uh, we didn't even know who they were sometimes. They were a friend of a friend of a friend. And, uh, you know, all I remember is my sister-in-law, bless her heart, good Italian cook, just incredible, um, you know, prepared these meals and she didn't come around to us and say, well, what do you want for dinner? She never even asked. It was a matter of, you know what? Dinner's at 5 o'clock. If you're there, you'll eat if you won't. There won't be anything left. So you'll have to starve. Fend for yourself. Basically, that's what it was. We were never asked, literally, you know, well, do you want this or this? It was like, okay, tonight we're having roast beef. And you sit down and you ate what was in front of you. And today we just live in a society that almost, you know, just really placates to the, the desires and whims of, of everybody. And so when we don't get our way, what happens is that leads to a complaining attitude. I mean, think about it. Have it your way. You know, I mean, you know, you can go to a, a fast food restaurant and tell them exactly what you want or you don't want on your food. And they'll give it to you that way. Now, some take a little longer than others, but the key is, is that you can get basically whatever you want. And, and, and it's kind of like rather than the the child conforming to whatever the parents desires are we we raise our children up sometimes with them with us conforming to their desires and so 
they learn this way, this behavior pattern, and so when they, they grow up and they're ready to go out into the, the world, it's almost a shock to them. They show up at their first job, and nobody asks them where they want to sit. Nobody asks them what cubicle do they want. Would you like the window, or would you like to be back here away from everything? You know, here, what kind of chair would you like? You know, you show up and you do whatever you're told to do. That's a rude awakening for a lot of young people. And I think there's a freedom today in being a young person that a lot of us didn't have when we were younger because they're, they're kind of ruling the whole, the whole thing. And so what happens is, you know, they grow up in a world that they think just kind of bows at their every little whim and their little, every little desire. As a matter of fact, if you ask a lot of times uh, even college students, you know, well, what do you want to do? Or high school students that are up in their, their higher um, grades, what do you want to do? I don't know. And the reason this sociologist says they always answer, I don't know, is because they don't want to, they don't want to have to kind of slot themselves into a certain responsibility. I want to be a doctor. So now they've got to prepare. No, they, they want, they want a myriad of things in front of them. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. I'm just saying that the behavior pattern is there. And so you have young people that are growing up and going, getting out of college and they have a great education, but they still don't know what they want to do. Because they're, they're unwilling to yield themselves to that part of the responsibility in our society. And instead of, you know, the, the family controlling the children in a lot of families, the children are controlling the whole family. Everything dictates uh, what they do, where they go, depending on the children. And obviously, when you have children, that puts a kink in everything. You know, my, whenever we, we want to go take Will and, and Crystal, my son-in-law and daughter, out to eat, she said, well, we have to go to a, a, a kid-friendly place. And I understand that. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I would not want to take my grandchildren to a restaurant that's not kid-friendly. Trust me. Children-friendly, whatever you call it. But, um, you know, it, this isn't a, a recent thing either. You know, the first complainer, you know who he was. He was Adam. His first complaint, you know, God, you know, the woman you gave me. Now, remember, if you go back and you look at that, he, he didn't blame Eve for this whole thing. Who did he blame? He blamed God. He was complaining against God. Eve had nothing to do with it. God made Eve. That was his thinking. You know, poor Adam, he wasn't even married. One day he woke up and he was married. How would you like to have that guy? You know, that'd be, that'd be a rude awakening for some of us. It's like, wow, what do you mean? You know, there's no choice in this. Now you fell asleep and now you're married. Boy. But he didn't blame Eve. He, he, and he blamed God. And his attitude was, you know, you could have picked anybody for me to be married to, but you picked this person. It's God's fault. Look at now, she led the whole human race into sin. And he's complaining. Cain complained to God about God's work in his life. In Genesis 4, uh, 13 and 14. Moses complained to God, you remember that? For not doing what uh, he wanted him to do, when he wanted him to do it. In Exodus chapter 5. Aaron and Miriam complained to God against Moses his chosen leader, and their own brother over in the book of Numbers. And Jonah even complained about God because he was mad at God for saving the Ninevites. Remember that? And it's, it's popular today to complain against God and one another. And, uh, and what Paul is pointing out here is, look, when we do things, especially within the body of Christ, especially within the church, it needs to be done in such a way that you don't have this complaining and this disputing going on. Because really, you know, you might say this, that all of our complaints in one way or another, our grumblings and disputes and all that, really are, are complaints against the, 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 the sovereign providential work and purpose and will of God. If you stop and you think about it, ultimately that's who you're complaining about. There's a book out called Disappointment with God. And it almost kind of says, well, it's okay to complain against God. I don't think it is. I don't believe that's right at all. In Romans, uh, uh, the ninth chapter of Romans, verse 20, you remember this verse, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? In other words, who in the world are you to answer back to God about anything? That's kind of an unthinkable thing to do. 
Even in Jude 16, it says that the, the apostates that, that are described there in that little book of Jude, it says that they're grumblers and they're finding fault following after their own lusts. All they want to do is what they want to do, and that's all they want to do. And if you don't get in line with their little lock and step, well, then somehow they're going to figure out a way to grumble and complain and find fault. It's characteristic of a sin of pride. You remember back in Numbers 13. As a matter of fact, look back there with me. Numbers 13. Here the Israelites are murmuring. They're, they're belly aching. They're griping. And it just kind of gives you a little insight into this whole attitude and the power of this attitude to spread like wildfire. Look at verse 30 of, of uh, Numbers 13. It says, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, Wait a minute, we're not able to go up against the people. They are, very, they are, they are uh, stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land uh, through which we have gone has spies in the land that devour its inhabitants. And all the people who we saw in it are men of great stature. And then we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, came uh, from the giants. Uh, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. See, Joshua... You remember, and Caleb came back from spying out the land, and they said, hey, you know what? God is on our side. We can do this. This is no big deal. Yeah, it's a little unnerving about some of the things we saw, but our God is a great God. But it says there that these men who had gone up with them kind of rejected that idea. They went along too. They saw the same thing. But their faith wasn't in God. And apparently, they began to uh, kind of start complaining. And, you know, they kind of started, you know, if they'd fail, and you can read down through there all this stuff. Now, if you go over to chapter 14, watch what happens all the way down in verse 36. Numbers 14, verse 36. It says, Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and, uh, remained alive of the men who went and spied out the land. Now if you stop and you think about that, they died before the Lord from a plague. Now, that should give you some indication of what God thinks of grumblers, of complainers, of whiners, you might say. Because they didn't just grumble against their leadership, they were grumbling against God himself. And sometimes we forget that. And the same thing happened back in... in uh, uh, the book of Exodus as well. You know, God delivers them, God delivers them, and they begin to complain. It's just a cycle they go through. And sometimes we fall into that same cycle on occasion. And God says, you know what? That's not, that's not right. We shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't just be grumbling and complaining and whining about because we didn't get our way or we don't like this or we don't like that. That's not what we're called to do as believers. And I think that one thing that is clear, if we look at um, uh, Philippians again, chapter 2, is that that's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying very clearly that we should not um, fall into that trap. That we shouldn't go back and, and have this attitude of, of, of complaining and disputing or, or grumbling and whining because he wants us to be... He wants us to be blameless, it says. Now, it's interesting. The word there, complaining or grumbling, it's some trans translations, it, it really means, in the original language, it's, hopefully I can say this, an onomatopoeic word. And what that means is, it's kind of like when little kids are playing with their toys and they're going, okay, that's not really a word. It's just a, a sound. Okay, 
uh, onomatopoeia. That's kind of even sounds like or whatever. Well, that's the same word here. These grumblings. It's just kind of that 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 grumbling in a low voice, kind of you know, just an expression of dissatisfaction, totally. And it's the same Greek word, actually, in the Greek Septuagint, when they translated the Old Testament in Exodus and Numbers, they translate the same word this way. It's, that, it's the same idea. And it's really a complaint that's expressed in a negative attitude about something. Things aren't going your way, so you're going to let people know and you're going to complain. Um, it's an emotional rejection, really, of God's will. It's an emotional rejection of your circumstances. And it comes out through mumbling and grumbling and griping and all sorts of things. And so we need to make sure that we're careful in that area. Now, the second word there, he says disputings. Um, it has the idea, it comes from, we get our word dialogue from that language, from that word. And uh, it has more of an intellectual kind of appeal to the, to the understanding of it. The first one's more emotional. It's kind of a belly aching, just whining about everything. The second one is, is an intellectual debate almost with God, you might say. You're going to argue with God about the why things are the way they are in your life and, and why he made you this way and what's going on and all these things. And so you've got to put this all in context. Because what Paul had just got done saying to us earlier, you remember, he said, work out your own salvation. And the basic attitude that you have to do that with is without complaining. In other words, God saved you for a purpose. God saved you and he, he calls you his own and he says, you know what, I gifted you in ways that I've gifted nobody else. I've gifted you uniquely because you're a person and I've created you special in my sight. And so when I call you to be my own and you bow your knee to my son, Jesus Christ, and you become one of my children, I want you to understand I have a plan in this. You're not just off on your own doing your own thing. And see, when we stop and we begin to complain and we begin to whine about whatever it may be, really we're telling God, hey, you know what, you don't know what you're doing. Stop just a second, God. I, I shouldn't have to be in this kind of situation. You know, I deserve better than this. And it's, the attitude begins. And when that attitude begins, it, it, it spreads like wildfire. Well, it's called basically sin in the Bible, that kind of an attitude, um, especially when we do it one to another. In 1 Peter 4.9, uh, Peter says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Without complaint. In other words, don't not only complain against God, the Word of God says, but don't complain about other people. And you know what? We all do that. We've all been there. But that doesn't make it right. Okay, And that's what Paul is trying to point out here is that, hey, as you're working out your salvation, this should be something that's very evident to you, that this should not be a norm in your life, that you just go about whining and complaining to other people about whatever is going on. We're not called to that. James alludes to that the same way uh, Peter does. And basically, you know what? If you complain against God, you're going to be miserable to be around if you're a believer because you're going to complain about everybody else too. <laughs> and it shows up there at that level. But the command is, is very simple here in Philippians. Do all things without complaining or grumbling or disputing. Now, you wonder why he tells us that. Well, that's what I want to look at today. I'm going to give us three reasons why he tells us to do this. And I think that it's, it's so important for us to kind of stop and to realize that we need to, this is an attitude that can creep in and we don't even know it's there. And before we know it, all of a sudden, you know, people are kind of staying away and we're thinking, what, what's going on? Well, you may have an attitude that's complaining and grumbling or whining, whatever it is. And that's why there in, in, in Philippians chapter 2, when he says, do all things without complaining and disputing, then he gives us some reasons. Here's why I'm telling you not to do this. And he says, so that, or that you. Okay? And then he gives us the three, three reasons. It's a purpose clause. He's saying, basically, I'm telling you to do something, and here's the reason why. You know, isn't that a good thing? Don't you just hate it when you were little that you had to do something? Mom and Dad told you to do something? And you said, why? Because I said so. Oh, I hate that answer. I mean, give me a reason. You know, I was in, I got saved when I was about 19. 
And I went from Indiana University of Pennsylvania in a matter of probably about eight months out to Christian Heritage College in Southern California. Tim LaHaye was a the president there. Very, very, very conservative school. Dress, hair had to be over the ears, had to be off the collar. You had to wear a collared shirt. Couldn't wear blue jeans unless you were um, you know, going off campus. And you had a pass to show everybody you were going off campus. Um, you know, when you went swimming, there was appropriate attire and inappropriate attire and all this. It, it was just rule after rule. Well, I remember when I first pulled in there, I'm thinking, hey, California, this is going to be a blast. I can't wait. You know, I'll just kick back the summer, get engaged in some classes in the fall. But the summer, I'm just going to go to the beach every day and just have fun. Well, I got there on a Friday and basically nobody was there at the college. I was in downtown San Diego. Finally got to the school late that night. They stuck me in somebody's room. I didn't even know they were gone on some choir tour or something. And the next morning, Saturday morning, I got up and, and kind of met with the RA in, in the area. And, and they're like, oh, would you have your classes scheduled? Well, no, I'm, I'm going to take them in the fall. And he just kind of smiles and said, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I was supposed to meet with the dean on that Monday. So I'm thinking, boy, this is going to be fun. Well, Monday morning, I go into the dean's office. His name was Dean Blackburn. And uh, sat down. And, oh, good to have you here at the school. I'm glad you got here. Okay, everything fine. You know, and uh, he said, uh, so now about your classes. I said, yeah, you know, I picked out some for the fall. He said, what do you mean for the fall? He goes, you know, classes start a week from today. I said, yeah, I know, I'm not going to the summer. Say, so. well, if you're living in the dorms, you're going to school. You can't just live here. I said, well, no, that's not the agreement. He goes, well, I don't know who you made the agreement with, but, the, you know, I'm the one that, that makes those agreements, and I didn't make any agreement. If you're going to live here in the dorms, which I had planned to do, you, you have to take a class. Okay, fine. You know, so I'm thinking, oh, that messed everything up. And then, you know, I began to realize that when all my musical equipment got, got there, my stereo and all my records and all that stuff, and it took me about 15 minutes after I got everything hooked up, you know, spent hours hooking everything up, I was listening to, I think, Kansas, you know, Wayward Sun or one of Dust in the Wind or something, I don't know, in my dorm room, you know. And I'm not thinking anything about this. You know, kind of turn it up a little bit. All of a sudden, knock, knock, knock on the door. And there's the RA. What are you doing? It's like, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm listening to music. I'm studying. You know, you can't listen to that kind of music here. What do you mean? It has a beat. I'm like, what? What do you mean it has? Every music has a beat. You know, where, where did you come from? And, you know, well, didn't you read the manual, the student manual? What are you talking about? No. Well, they had very stringent rules about all this stuff. And, I mean, I began to, to really, I, I, my first semester, I almost got kicked out of this school. Just because I was rebellious. And I'd let my hair grow just long enough to touch the collar. And then they'd put this little pink slip in your mailbox. And Dean Blackburn would say, see me Monday morning, whatever. Well, Sunday afternoon, I'd get one of the girls, give me a haircut or whatever. And I'd go in there, yes, Dean, what would you like? Well, you know about your hair. Oh, okay. And see, I worked part-time for the college. And what, what part of my job was was to clean up the offices. And our dear Dean Blackburn, he was very organized, and he'd leave everything out on his desk the night before for the next day. So if I got one of those little pink slips in my mailbox, what was I doing? Well, I was cleaning his office definitely that night, because right there, under my name, he'd have listed things that were I was going to get in trouble with. Music too loud, you know, went off campus without whatever, hair over the ears. And I'd just write these things down, okay, get a haircut, you know. And I'd go into his office the next day, totally repentant. You know, God has really talked to me, but I know I just, I need to change. Well, that worked for a while, but he caught on to that. And finally, he said, you know what, Steve, you're going to go see Dr. LaHaye. And, and I thought, okay. Went over and I asked him, and I said, you know what, some of these rules are stupid. I'm sorry, but I, I just think it's stupid. He said, you know what, you're probably right. And he goes, I know that the trustees try to back up every little rule they have with a certain little verse. And, you know, to be honest with you, some of them don't fit. I'll give you that. And I said, wow, okay, I'm making headway here. And then he said this. He goes, but this is our school, and we feel God is directing us to run it in this way. There are other Christian schools that aren't as conservative. So if you want to go somewhere else, go ahead. But if you're going to stay here, you're going to go by the rules. And you know what? It gave me an answer that I was looking for. That's all I wanted. I didn't want to say, wow, you know, it's in the Bible, because half these things were just legalistic, you know, uh, stuff that they made up. But when, you know... Dr. LaHaye sat down and said, you know what, this is our school and this is why you have to obey because 
we're over you and we're responsible for you and you may not agree with everything, but this is the way it's going to work out. Well, you know what? That helps us obey. And sometimes we need an explanation. And, but when it comes to God, a lot of times we hold out for that explanation and God is saying, you know what? You just need to do what I'm telling you to do. It may not make any sense right now, but five years you're going to look back and say, oh, okay, now I see how everything fits together. And so sometimes we need to obey our parents or other people or the Lord without an answer. But a lot of times it's good to get that answer. Well, Paul tells us here three reasons, first of all, why we need to do this, why we, we shouldn't be complaining. Don't complain, you know, but gratefully live out your salvation is what he's saying. And the first one there in verse 15, chapter 2, he says that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, above reproach. We're without fault. The first thing there is, you know what, we need to stop complaining and stop going for our own sake. That's what Paul's telling us. Look, it's not doing you any good. This isn't a way to, to deal with the problems that, that, that you might have before you. He says, you know what, if you want to become the kind of children of God that God has saved you to be, it starts with number one. And if you have that attitude of grumbling and, and complaining, you need to stop, even now, and confess in your heart before God. Say, God, you know what, give me a different outlook. Yeah, my circumstances aren't the best. Yeah, you know what? There's a lot of things that I want to do that I can't do, whatever it might be. But tell God. And then confess that to Him. And tell Him to give you a different attitude. Because that's what He says here. In order that, or with the result that, uh, given the purpose that, do all these things without complaining so that you may become blameless and harmless. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, remember what it says. It says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. That's who we are to imitate. And God is our Father, and we're to imitate Him. We need to pattern our life after His way, not our own. And that's just an important uh, point. And so he says there, basically, you're to stop complaining. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing in order that you may prove yourselves to be. The literal Greek says this, in order that you may become. And it's a process. That's what, that's what Paul's laying out here. He's laying out the process for us of becoming a blameless, innocent, above a reproach, without fault child of God. And he said, as that process goes on, don't you dare have the attitude of complaining about every little thing as you go through this process. Because it's not going to make the process any more pleasant for you. Now you notice those two words there, blameless and harmless. I think I put some notes there in your, in your uh, outline. Uh, blameless simply means a, a life that can't be criticized. Uh, there's nothing for which you can be held responsible by way of sin or evil, wickedness, anything like that. It's a life without blame. It's a life that has no blemish, you might say. No blot on it. No sinful stain What people look at and say, oh yeah, there's a Christian, look at their life. And then the word innocent or harmless can be translated either way. Some translate it harmless, some translate it innocent. It's also translated in Matthew 10, 16, where Jesus says, be wise as serpent, and yet what? Harmless as doves. It also is translated simple in Romans 16, 19. Uh, Paul says that we are to be simple concerning evil. Uh, it has nothing to do with, with the idea of being pure. pure. It has, has to do with being unmixed, unadulterated, undefiled. It's used a lot of times when they talk about unmixed wine or an unmixed metal, unalloyed metal. And so he uses those two basic terms there, and he says, you know what? Our life should be a life that can't be criticized for sin, and which is pure and undefiled and unadulterated. It's not, in other words, it's not mixed with a bunch of evil. So people look at you and go, what are they? They're a Christian? That's how they live their life? So it's a pure life. It's a life without fault, a life without a flaw. It doesn't mean you're perfect. But you're in that process 
of sanctification. And that's what God is, that's what Paul is pointing out to us. And that's God's desire for his people, for us, that our character, that our conduct would match our position in Christ. See, so many times we come to church and we sing hymns and we do all that, and then we go out in the world and, and, and there's a disconnect. And we can't figure out what's wrong. Well, there shouldn't be a disconnect. We're to be the same person here as we are out there in the world. I, you know, sometimes people get to know me and say, you know, you're not that much different. You know, I mean, you, and I said, what do you mean? And, and some people say, well, you know how some pastors are. I said, no, I don't. I don't understand what you mean. Well, you know, like Sunday morning, they're different than they are like Tuesday morning. And I'm like, they are? You know, I couldn't get away with that, first of all. But, you know, and I, and I look back on it and I'm thinking, you know what, that's probably a good game to play because then you can kind of hide some of your faults. I mean, you know, my problem is I am who I am and a lot of times I'll offend somebody and not even realize it or whatever and just go on in life. doesn't excuse it, but I'm just saying I'm not trying to put on a, a show here. Uh, and that's where we have to realize that neither should we. We shouldn't come here Sunday morning, put on a show for God and then go out and, and live like something else in the world. That's, that's hypocrisy. Ephesians 5 says the church is to be blameless, without spot, without blemish, a bride. You notice he uses that, that word there in, in verse 15. Without fault or, or above reproach, some translations say. And it has the idea that, that basically it, it, it means faultless, flawless, spotless without blemish. Um, and it's really referring to a sacrifice in the Old Testament. That same word in Numbers 6 and in Numbers 19 is referring to a sacrifice that was given without blemish, without spot. The kind of sacrifice that needed to be brought before the Lord. Before the Lord. And that's really what he's saying here. He's saying the same thing over and over. He's saying, first of all, be harmless, be blameless, be uh, flawless, faultless, sinless. Pure. That's what he wants. And you say, well, why? Why does he want all this? Well, he tells us. He says, because you're children of God. You're children of God. You're to become the kind of proper child of God that he wants you to be. He, you want to represent God in the right way. You know, when you have children... You don't want your children to misrepresent your family name. That would dishonor you and your family and your, your, your whole thing. You want them to, to, to live a, a life that's with character and an upright life so that, that people look at them they can say, oh yeah, that person is this. And they belong to this family and that family is a good family. That's on the human side. Well, think of it even more so on God's side. Romans 12 says that we're to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. So we're like a sacrifice to be without spot or without blemish, without stain, undefiled, pure. We're children of God. You have to stop and you have to realize who do you belong to? As a Christian, you belong to God. Who owns you? God owns you. He bought you with a price. Whose life do you share? You share the very life of God in His identity with His Son. And so we need to live as believers in consistency with who we really are as Christians. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, in other words, the second coming of Christ when He comes, He's talking about. He says, Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, blameless. In other words, if you know Christ and you know Christ is coming, that should be motivation for us believers to clean up our life. He could come right now. It's imminent. We're not waiting for any prophecy to be fulfilled. We're not waiting for anything like that. Christ could come back today. And the question you have to answer for in your own being is, am I ready for that? Am I ready to meet the Lord and Savior? Or is there a lot of un business that I have to do? Are there things that I'm holding on to? Are there attitudes that I need to, as a believer, I shouldn't have? 
or the relationships with other people that either need healed or someone need broken or whatever, uh, you know, to make things right. But we always live in the light of the coming of Christ. And that should be a motivation for us. He's coming back for us. And that means basically no complaining. That's, that's the idea. If you're complaining, you know, you're a grumbler, a griper, bellyacher, whatever you want to call it. You're, you're going you're gonna to spread discontent. It happened with God's people in the Old Testament and it happens all the time in churches today. And it's called sin. And it needs to be confessed and it needs to be repented of and you need to ask God because you know what? You can't work your way through that. I've been there. I've been in that with that attitude and you know, been whining about every little thing that comes across my desk. And you know what? God has to bring you to a point where you're willing to let go of it and say, you know what? I'm not happy, but it doesn't matter. It's not about my happiness. You know, God, focus my thoughts on other things than these problems before me. And God will do that. Second point. Not only for our own selves, but the second point that we talk about reason for obedience in this way of not whining and complaining is for the sake of the unsaved. For the sake of the unsaved. He says in verse 15 there, he says, be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast or holding forth is a better translation. Holding forth the word of life. In other words, how as a believer are you expected to have any kind of impact on anybody if you're constantly focusing on your own problems and you're just constantly whining to God and to others? You're not going to be very effective. See, first of all, he's talking about yourself. He said, you know what, you need to do this because it's a right thing to do for you to do before God. But you know what, it gets bigger than that. The circle gets bigger. If you're going to break that, if you say, you know what, I don't care about myself, I'm going to continue to whine and complain, well then you know what, it's going to affect other people. And primarily it's going to affect those who are not saved. That's what he's saying. We're talking here not about somebody who's saved, not affecting that, he's saying the unsaved. We're talking about our witnessing. We're talking about our evangelism. We're talking about the way we reach out to the lost in this lost and dying world we live in. And this is really the, the main issue here. And he says here that it's primarily a matter of God's children shining as lights in a dark world. In a dark world. And by doing that effectively... It comes down to basically two things, character and content. Character and content. Who you are and what you say. That's what it boils down to. You notice there, he says, basically, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He borrows that out of, from Moses out of Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. And he's talking about an apostate Israel, Moses is. And he borrows that same phrase and he brings it right up here, and puts it right in front of our face. We live in a crooked and perverse society. We just do. That's the way it is. In John 17, when, when uh, Jesus prayed to the Father, He said this, I'm not going to ask you to take them out of the world, but I'm going to ask you to keep them in the world. Why? They're there to shine as lights in the world. It is the world of, of God rejectors. It's the world of Christ haters. You know, that's why sometimes when you watch the evening news, we get surprised about some of the things we hear. I, I don't get that surprised anymore. Because it's like, what do you expect? It's a tragic place we live. It's morally warped. It's spiritually perverted in a lot of ways. And that's the words he uses here. He uses two words, crooked and perverse. Crooked is kind of interesting. Have you ever heard anybody has the, the disease of scoliosis? Our daughter had it in her spine. She had a major curvature of the spine. And when she was 12 or 13, she had to go to Oakland's Children's Hospital and they cut her open and they put this, this device, they straightened her, cut her spine and, and molded it back together and put this device around it to hold it in place. 
So that they corrected like 85 or 90% of her curvature of the spine. And they said if she wouldn't have had that done, her heart and her lungs would have been compressed and it would have led to an early, her early demise, as the doctor said. And so that's the idea here. There's a, there's a curvature. There's something wrong, bent out of shape. That's the world we live in. Proverbs 2.15 describes the society of this world. It says their paths are crooked and their ways are devious. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, we all like sheep have gone what? Gone astray, gone crooked, gone off the path. That's the idea. So man has kind of deviated from the path and became some twisted, distorted character that's not pleasing to God. That's why Jesus said, O believing and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? We're called to shine as lights to this, this dark and, and perverted, this crooked world. I mean, if you just stop and you think about the morals of our society, fornication is right, adultery is right, homosexuality is right, lying is right, cheating is right. Everything the Bible says is wrong. Well, our society says, oh, it's okay. Everything is revel uh, relevant. You know, there's no absolute truth. Well, that's not what the Word of God says. And we have to live our lives not in light of what society is telling us, but in light of what God is telling us. In Ephesians 5.8, we're told this by, by, by Paul. He says, You were formerly darkness. Now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Then he talks about the fruit of the light. What is it? The fruit of the light is goodness and righteousness and truth. Learn what is pleasing to the Lord and don't participate in, in what is not. That's what we're called to do as believers. And so he says here very clearly that basically we have that, that kind of a, a situation going on. You have a perverted and, and perverse crooked generation and we're to shine as lights even in the Old Testament it talks about a shining as lights verse 16 it says hold fast better translation is hold forth the word of life so part of it is first of all you you have to do this for yourself but then secondly you do it so your testimony so your evangelism is effectiveness because if you live one life and you go out and you share Christ with people they're gonna laugh that's why the people say, oh, I'm not going to go to a church that's full of hypocrites. And a lot of times they're right, which is unfortunate, but that's, it's the truth. And so what he's saying here is, you know what? Your evangelism effectiveness depends on this. You do it for the sake of the unsaved and yourself. And the last one, point number three, he says, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Who? Paul. Paul's talking about himself. That I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Third reason is, you know what? You not only do it for yourself, you not only do it for the sake of the unsaved you're trying to reach, but you also do it for, for those who, who serve the church. For those who lead the church. You do it for your elders. You do it for your pastor. You say, well, that sounds kind of, you know, selfishly motivated by you. No, that's what he's saying. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, I want you to do this so that, or in order that, as your spiritual mentor, I can rejoice in the day of Christ. See, if you've got a church that's full of complaining people, and they're just constantly going at it, you know what? That, that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard on the leadership. It's going to be hard on the body. It's going to be hard on everybody involved with that ministry to do anything. Because there's always this, this complaining, whining attitude about whatever it may be. And what he's saying here is, you know what? Make me proud. Do it for yourself. Do it for the unsaved. And also, think of me when you're doing this. That's really what he's saying. I mean, think about it. If you took somebody alongside and, and you began to teach them things, and you spent time doing that, you committed your life to kind of mentoring this person, 
And that person one day just basically walked away from you and didn't want to have anything to do with you and, and went against everything you taught them. Wouldn't that grieve your heart? It, it would totally grieve your heart. You know, and, and a lot of times in ministry, the only hope we have one day is that we'll stand before the Lord and he'll say, you know what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your reward. And you'll be able to see it. We people's lives that are changed. But see, we can't make that happen. It, it's, it, it's God working in the hearts and lives of people, but it's also people being obedient to God. And that's what we're called to do as believers. So I don't know if... if I, I don't think this is prevalent in our church. I don't think we're, we're a church of a bunch of whining and, and complaining people. Don't get me wrong. But it's something that we have to be on the guard against. Because it can start in the ever so slight way. And before you know it, it's spreading. And that's why Paul brings it up here. And don't ever think that we're beyond that as a body, because we're not. I mean, there are some churches that argue and have splits over the color of the carpet. You know? And, I, and I, it's, it's just amazing to me. I'll talk to other pastors and talk about when we remodeled this facility. I mean, they're just amazed how it just kind of went so smoothly. You know, and they're always, well, I bet you when you had to get rid of those pews, that was a real fight. I'm like, no. I thought it might have been, but it wasn't. How about the color of the carpet? Bet you they, no. You know why? Because those things don't really matter. You know, because we have our priorities on what they should be, I think, as a body. And what is that? Is, is individually living lives that are honoring and glorifying to Him and, and trying to serve Him in the best way we can. And so remember, the next time you spew a complaint or a grumble or a whine about something, stop and say, you know what? God, th this isn't right. And if it's something so serious that you feel you need to address it, then you go to that person and you say, hey, you know what? Here's the deal. But make sure it's, it's something that's prevalent. You know, because in ministry sometimes, a lot of times, that's all you hear. You hear those who are, are, are complaining about something. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of it's interesting when you really sit back and, and look at it. Because, you know, to be honest with you, for every given Sunday, and I'm not saying this happens a lot because it doesn't, but I've had occasion where someone comes up to me afterwards, the music was so loud, it was too loud. Somebody else saying, you know what, it wasn't loud enough. I mean, what do you do in that situation? In my mind, I go, that must have been just right, you know. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm not going to fiddle with anything. But I mean, there's a lot bigger things, if we're going to complain, that are really important things, like error and doctrine or things like that, but preferential things, we need to kind of yield and, and say, hey, you know, I appreciate this. We want, our, we want people's input. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But do it in, a, in an attitude that you're trying to help, not trying to, to hinder or complain or whine against something. And I think that's just a good message for us to lead up to our communion time together. And uh, we practice an open communion here at, at Grace Bible Church. And what I mean by that is that it's open to those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And for those who don't, maybe, maybe there's some here who haven't trusted um, Jesus Christ as their Lord and sa Savior. It's never too late for that. Maybe there was something you heard, maybe one of the verses that we read this morning kind of pricked your heart. Um, you know, it's, it's never too late to come to Christ. And I'm not joking when I'm saying he could come today, because he could. Next weekend, we're going to be going through the book of Revelation with Dr. Hawking. And, you know, as much as I'm looking forward to that, I'm thinking, man, what if the Lord came before that? Wouldn't that be awesome? You know? Uh, and we need to be ready when we meet God on that day, when we die or, or we go to be with him or he comes with us, we need to be ready spiritually. And the Bible says the way to be ready spiritually is to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, that you've come to him and you've come clean. And what I mean by that is just saying, hey, you know what, God, I am a sinner. The Bible says that we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And as we understand that, that there's no one here that's, that's not guilty of that. Every one of us is. And that's what makes the church such a unique group of people. 
It's not a group of perfect people, but God said He didn't call the, 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 the wonderful and the good-looking and all those. Not that some of you aren't good-looking, don't get me wrong. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, God said He called the low things. And, and He really wants us not to put our faith in our own ability to work up our salvation. But we put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ because He's already done the work for us. And if you're here this morning and, and you've yet to make yourself right with God, you know that. God, God has given you a conscience. You know whether or not you're a believer here this morning. And if you're not, you can cry out to Him even this morning and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Reveal yourself to me in a way that I know that you have forgiven me. I want to change my life. I want to repent of my sin, turn away from it because it's dishonoring to you. It's displeasing you. And I want you to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. And he'll do that. That's a prayer he'll answer this morning. Let's just bow in a word of prayer as the worship team comes. And we're going to sing a couple songs and then we'll have our communion time together. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the words of Paul. And uh, thank you that he is so willing to point these things out to us. And Lord, I, I thank you for this body that, that together, Lord, this isn't a pervasive problem in our in our midst. And yet, Lord, I know that, it, at least for myself individually, I've complained about things at times. I've even whined to you about things at times. And I know that that attitude is not pleasing to you. And Father, we ask your forgiveness for that. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, just make us the, the, the people that you desire us to be. And that's a holy people, a people that that shine as bright lights in a dark and dying world. Lord, that people would not just look at who we are, but hear what we say, that we would, when we share the gospel with people, that it would be the authentic gospel, not some cheap imitation gospel. Father, that they would hear about repentance and the blood of Christ and sin and death and hell. And Lord, that you would free them from, from their guilt through Christ. Father, we pray that you just minister to our hearts now as we sing these couple worship songs to prepare our hearts for communion. And Lord, we just uh, thank you for your goodness to us and your love and your grace and mercy. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.